Today is the last class that we're going to have on the subject of worship. That doesn't mean we, we won't talk about worship in the future or something like that, but it's sort of the hard landing that we're going to have here as far as this series goes. I think we're up to, is it 35 lessons that ended up being in this series? Did somebody who listened to all of them, who could tell me how many we've had at this point? Anyway, I think it's like 32 or 33. So we're, we have really, really talked a lot about the subject of worship. You know, we started running through the history of the church and how the early church worshiped. We uh, moved on to the Middle Ages. When we talked about worship, we always tried to make sure to talk about preaching because I've tried to make the case that preaching is a form of worship. Uh, we don't always think of preaching as a form of worship. We don't think of it as an element of worship, but it actually is. And so uh, it's a great gift from God that he uses to build us up and edify us and glorify himself. We talked, let's see, let's see. We talked last week about um, about the, the regulative principle specifically. And we talked about the fact that the regulative principle says that we should worship God in the ways that he has commanded in scripture. One of the things that I tried to do was um, sort of spell that out for you in a biblical way, try to make the, the biblical argument that God does care how he's worshipped. He does care uh, how we, we gather together as a corporate body and, uh, how we, and what we do, right? And so he's told us what we should do in his word. He's told us that we should sing, that we should pray, that we should, that we should hear the word together, that we should observe the sacraments together. And so the picture that starts to form when you read the Bible is a very simple worship service. That doesn't mean that there are, there's only one thing that we do. We do many things, but it's actually simple. Uh, and it's, it's a, in a sense, not very cluttered. Uh, what God gives to us. And we use these core categories. If you remember, we use the, the terms elements, forms, and circumstances. My hope is that using those, that, that terminology has given us at least a nomenclature, a way of talking about how we think about the parts of worship, how we think about um, what goes into worship. And, and then we, I introduced the regulative principle. And in the regulative principle, I think if I could summarize it really simply, it was that the elements of worship in the church need to be biblically commanded. God needs to actually give them to the church uh, for us to be doing them as an element of worship. We also talked about the fact that that doesn't mean that you have to have a direct biblical text for your forms of worship, but you need to have biblical rationale that goes into it. You need to be biblically informed for the forms. And then with circumstances, we talked about this too, that circumstances are sort of the circumstantial things that you need in order to be able to gather, right? You've got to be in some space. That's a circumstance of worship. Where are you going to be? It's a circumstance of worship. What time are you going to meet? It's a circumstance of worship. What, time, what is the thermostat going to be set at? And all the sort of really detailed questions that you're going to get. Um, all of those um, fit, though, under the regulative principle and those categories, I think, help us think through them. The alternative, uh, at least in theory, the alternative to the regulative principle is something called the normative principle. Um, when we talk about the normative principle, the normative principle says that whatever God does not forbid is permitted as an element of worship. And so I talked a little bit about the fact that Anglicans and Lutherans would be examples of those who practice and uh, put into practice the normative principle. Um, if there's no prohibition of something found in scripture, then they would say it's permissible in corporate worship. Um, 
the way that it would show up is in somebody who says, show me a verse that says it's not okay to do X, Y, or Z, and then I will change my mind. So instead of saying, find me a verse where this is done, they say, find me a verse where it says you can't do this thing. That's the kind of question that someone who's guided by the normative principle would follow. Um, So I'm going to give you some examples of things that some churches do or have done in corporate worship that are not commanded in Scripture, but they also aren't explicitly forbidden in Scripture. So I'm going to give you some examples of things that are done that would fit with what we call the normative principle. Um, Here's one, and and I feel good saying this because I've never felt pressure to do this here at Evergreen. So uh, always nice to bring up things that no one's asking you to do. Um, Patriotic holidays. Um, You may have been to a church before where they have patriotic worship services, where they sing God Bless America, where there are flag presentations. Um, Maybe maybe on uh, 4th of July, there's a message about sacrifice, um, things like that. There are many virtues in being patriotic, and I would argue it's not necessarily sinful to be patriotic, but... Being patriotic is not forbidden in scripture. And so as long as it isn't an idol or it doesn't drift into worship, I would say it's not sinful. Um, Also, there is a great virtue in telling those who have served in the armed forces, we appreciate your service. That is a valuable thing. That's an important thing. Um, And it is definitely not a sin to tell those, those veterans among us how much we love them and how much we appreciate them. But our patriotic services commanded in scripture Does God intend for it to be a part of our worship? Um, I think that would be a very hard case to make from Scripture. Um, Patriotism isn't sinful, but patriotic services aren't commanded in Scripture. And that's where I think you see the the distinction between the normative principle and the regulative principle and how you would answer a question like that. And so in a church that's guided by the normative principle, they would say, I can't find anywhere in scripture that it says that you can't sing songs about America. I can't find anywhere in scripture that says you can't honor those who are veterans during the service, that sort of thing. And so um, they'd say it's permitted. And then the regulative principle, I think it would not fit with the regulative principle. But those are two different ways of approaching that question. And the way you come out, it basically is guided by what, what you're convinced of. Are you convinced that God must command this thing? Or are you convinced that we can do it as long as it's not forbidden? Um, that would be one example. Um, another example would be something like burning incense. Burning incense in a worship service. I don't know if you've ever gone to like a, a church service where the... Uh, like a Roman Catholic church where they'll have a censer and they'll walk around and they'll smoke the room. Um, I've, um, I, my only time, I've been to two Roman Catholic churches and I had never, I didn't know they did that, where they walked around and they threw water on, on the crowd and they have the, the censer with the, the incense in it. And all of those are things that um, I think you, you don't find practiced in scripture. What you do find them in is part of the ceremonial law. So you go back to the Old Testament, you find those in the ceremonial law. Um, Exodus tells us explicitly that God commands its use, but where does he command it to be used? In the temple. And so the question is, how much of the work of the temple is supposed to be revived and brought into the church today in a context where sacrifices are no longer taking place? 
Um, here's a question. Does anyone know why? We talked about this. Why does a Roman Catholic church have an altar instead of a table? Yeah, the, the, the view of the Roman church is that this is not a memorial or just a sign and seal, but that there is a sacrifice that is taking place when the, when the priest performs the service. And so their belief is that there is still a sacrifice taking place that explains why there's an altar at the front. And it also explains why um, it explains why the Reformed Church has moved away from that because, of course, they rejected the idea that there's a sacrifice taking place. With the, with the practice of a sacrifice taking place during the service, you can understand why incense is used in the service. Because there is a sacrifice that is to be taking place in this location. And it's going to happen at the end of the service. And so they open the service with the use of incense. And then they close the service with a sacrifice. And so churches today, some of them decide, well, we're going to use incense. It sets a mood. Maybe we will give it some kind of meaning and give an explanation. Right? This incense is like our prayers that go up to God. Whenever we start talking about something that could be an incidental, and the way that the the room smells is an incidental, right? It would be a circumstance of worship. But then when you point at it and say, well, uh, the reason we do this is because it's symbolic of X, Y, or Z, you you make make it an element. And so in Roman Catholic churches, that's an element of the worship service, the, the use of incense would be. And so I think it's a reason why even though you see incense in the Old Testament, uh, you see that it's part of the ceremonial law, you could also imagine why we don't need to revive the sacrificial laws of the Old Testament and bring them back into God's worship, right? Um, <clears throat> another example would be, I think I used this, this example before, uh, Ash Wednesday services. There is a really helpful article. I think if you, if, you're, if you have ever been to an Anglican church in the United States, um, then you know that Anglicans are really very consistent, I think, across the board in the United States of practicing something like Ash Wednesday. There's a fascinating article by oh, – I'm, I'm, I feel bad. I just mentioned, thought I was going to mention his name, and now I've forgotten his name. He actually, there is a, a fellow who, who did some research and found that actually Anglican churches refused to do Ash Wednesday services uh, up until the mid-1900s. It was only in the 1950s and 60s that it became commonplace for churches to start, Anglican churches, to start practicing having Ash Wednesday services. Before that, it was not an, a common practice at all in Anglican churches. Um, and as soon as this service is today is over with, as soon as this class is over, I will remember the name of the author of the of article. Course. But it was, it, it's always the way it works, right? You take your car and you tell the mechanic something's wrong and nothing's wrong when you take it to the mechanic. And it's the same thing when you remember something that you want people to read. Um, and it was also not a norm in Presbyterian churches. That is, that is changing. There are definitely churches even in that, that say they're in the Reformed tradition, Presbyterian tradition, who are bringing some of these uh, holidays back. Um, you know, I mentioned this before. In Scripture, it is not unusual for someone who is grieving, even grieving their own sin, to put ashes on their own forehead. Uh, it is it is a common thing in Scripture for someone to do so with sackcloth and ashes. Those are the terms that are often used for grieving. 
And so I would never deny someone the right to apply ashes to their own forehead, especially as a show of grief. Yeah. Why is it that some of the Presbyterian churches are bringing back some of these uh, other type of uh, incidentals? Yeah, that would require me to sort of do a little mind reading. Oh, really? But, But I could tell you that there's a certain draw to it. There's something about it that uh, about the seasons there's something about the ebb and flow of sort of a church calendar year there's something about these practices that i think has a great appeal to a lot of people i think i think the stark simplicity of sort of the puritan approach the presbyterian approach just chafes for some people and there is an opportunity to do more and i think people are people gravitate towards doing more but why the 50s and 60s? Anything oh, um, I have to go back and read it. It's probably been six months since I read that article. So I, I, I'd want to look back and see why, he, why that change started happening. So I'm not going to – I couldn't give you a specific answer. What's that, Micah? Miles Smith. Miles Smith. Is that who wrote the article or is that – All right. I'll, Benjamin, if you email me – anybody who wants to know can email me and I'll send them the article because I've got it saved somewhere. I just keep forgetting. Yeah. Um, I have a neighbor that shows up with uh, ashes um, periodically. And ever since I've ever heard of it, I've never been acquainted with it. Mm-hmm. Baptist tradition. Yeah. Um, why, why is it on Wednesday? What's that have to do with things? Uh, Ash Wednesday. Someone, else, someone who's an expert in these things. Step in and fill everybody in on the church calendar for me. What's that? Oh. It's the beginning of Lent. Yeah. Monday Thursday would be another example of a, a day that certainly gets practiced by some. It's the day of the Last Supper. Um, some of these things are not necessarily wrong to do if they're not church services, if they're simply practices that individuals want to engage in. Um, sometimes they're not even treated as elements of worship. I mean, we have a um, we have a we have, we have essentially a, a, uh, the uh, the Tenebrae service here. It doesn't have the marks of a worship service. It is a concert. It's effectively an evening for us to hear from Scripture, to be reminded of God's Word, to have to sing songs in praise of Christ and remember His sacrifice. But you also see basically everything else missing that you would think of should be in a worship service. We don't have a call to worship. We don't have the preaching of God's Word. Uh, we don't have the sacraments. Um, you know, the what we do for Tenebrae is just simply, I don't think fits the categories of what is often practiced in those other traditions. So I think that if somebody wants to go to a church on a Thursday night and be reminded of the Last Supper, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I don't think it's even a violation of the regulative principle. But I do think that if you make it a worship service, that I think you run into trouble with the regulative principle at that point. Um, uh, other things that might be done in churches that maybe you didn't know about or more creative acts that, have, uh, that I think also don't fit with the regulative principle but might fit with the normative principle. Um, I can give you an example from one church. These are things that you haven't seen here. Um, in one church, nailing a list of sins written on a paper to a wooden cross at the front of the sanctuary. And so during the service, people will come forward and they would have their sins written down and they would take a little nail and they would nail it to the cross at the front of the sanctuary. 
Um, placing written prayers inside of a manger kept in front of the pulpit. Um, sketches or skits during the worship service. Um, organized liturgical dances. Um, by the way, I'm not talking about people spontaneously dancing during church. Now, we don't run into that here. But I've told you guys before that uh, in my church growing up, there was a fellow named Jerry who always managed to sneak a tambourine into the worship service. Uh, <laughs> and he loved to spontaneously shake that tambourine and dance during the service. So uh, I've seen things like that happen. But, uh, you know, even though I, I get a chuckle out of it, I also think Jerry made himself an object of, of attention by doing that. So I think in some ways... You can sort of have an individual expression that still distracts people too. So there's some wisdom and uh, prudence involved in thinking through carefully what is and isn't a good idea in a worship service. Um, you know, I originally listed this one uh, under normative principle. I've since changed my mind, but I'll mention it anyway. I don't think the normative principle would permit this. Anointing or blessing inanimate objects or animals. Um, there are definitely churches where you can take your dog for a blessing. Uh, there are definitely churches where you could bring an inanimate object and have it blessed. Um, I don't think that fits even with the normative principle. I'm not going to be so mean to normative principle folks that I'm going to uh, attribute this to them. Um, it is just a strange practice to do that. I think that's an odd thing. Um, one of my favorite videos that, you know, you sometimes go around the internet and you see some funny stuff out there. There was a uh, video of a woman and the neighbor was filming from her window, like just sort of, you, you know, one of those you can't believe this is happening things. And this woman had invited the priest dressed in his full priestly regalia to come and she had opened the hood of her car and the priest was standing there and he was... Uh, throwing holy water onto this vehicle. And I i mean, I have had cars that were so bad, I thought they needed an exorcism. I, it looks like that was what was happening there. Um, could you find a verse that says, you can't do that? I'm not sure. Um, I do think you can find verses that say that you should pray to the Lord about everything. So um, there's, there's room for something to be done there. But uh, I think that, um, anyway... If nothing else, it gave me quite a chuckle. Um, but a, a church that's practicing, that's guided by the normative principle is not going to practice things in public worship that scripture says are outright sinful, right? They would not invite a filthy stand-up comic to come and tell dirty jokes to the, the church and things like that. They would not do sinful things in the service. But they would be creative. They would do things that are not commanded. Right, And so creativity would be a good description of how, how I would talk about a church that's guided by the normative principle. Um, churches might not say we believe in the normative principle, but they're still guided by it. I think um, regulative principle churches seem to, be, seem to be a little more self-conscious about it. They tend to, to think a little more uh, explicitly about it. Um, the normative principle churches might not have a name for it, but if someone's argument is, I'll admit that it's not commanded in Scripture, but it's not wrong it's not sinful, so we can do it, then they're following it. Um, now, that doesn't mean the churches that follow the regulative principle are always going to be stuck in the mud and never mix things up. Um, if you're guided by the regulative principle, you're going to be willing to be creative, but not with the elements. So you'll be creative, but not with the elements. So 
they will be creative and have leeway while being biblically informed on things like the forms and the circumstances, but um, to a degree that they don't end up overshadowing the elements. So churches guided by the regulative principle actually have flexibility, but they have flexibility within God's guidelines, between God's rails that he has set up. And so we can be creative, we can be flexible, but, but without sacrificing or modifying the elements themselves. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. Just a question. Larry. Why isn't Ascension Day recognized? Ascension Day? Like the day that Jesus ascended into heaven? Well, John, John might have an answer. The Continental Reformers, all of the Reformed want to abolish the total church calendar. Mm-hmm. Okay? But in Holland and Germany, the, 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 center of the government said, no, we're going to keep Ascension, we're going to keep Easter Monday, we're going to keep Pentecost. But we don't have Ascension here because the Puritans got their way. Mm-hmm. When the Puritans came here, they finally got their way. No church calendar whatsoever. So we don't have Ascension or Easter Monday or Pentecost Monday in America. So some, some of them stuck and some of them did not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you and you find diversity among the reformers. Calvin wants a very pared back church calendar, but you know, we already talked about the church calendar and uh, earlier. So, you know, go back to like the twentieth lesson or whatever we did on or worship and we talked a little bit about the cal- church calendar and how it developed. Um but this is very important to uh, make to observe something. And, and I want to make this – this is a criticism of the normative principle. This is where I'm sort of stepping in and kind of specifically being critical of that view. The normative principle doesn't protect sensitive consciences. Instead, it purports to instruct the conscience that something else should be part of worship even when it can't be found in Scripture. So what that means is necessarily – the, the normative principle doesn't solve the problem of conscience by arguing that the, trouble, the person whose conscience is troubled is answered by God's word. Instead, it's answered by the argument of the person making it and not from scripture. So the person who ends up saying we should do this thing that's not found in the Bible, they are the ones instructing the conscience instead of God. And that is – if you understand the importance of the conscience, then you understand why that's such a big deal. You understand why it's such a big deal to say to someone, I know God didn't say this, but there's nothing wrong with it, so you should be okay with it. Um, that's a hard stretch to make. That's actually a hard case to make. Um, and so in the normative principle, God is not binding the conscience, the church is. And that's a dangerous place to be in. Now, I want to address four arguments against the regulative principle. Um, One actually is just a quote from Calvin. It's not really an argument against the regulative principle, but it does explain why people don't like it. Um, Calvin says, I know how difficult it is to persuade the world that God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by his word. Um, And so he's not making an argument against the regulative principle. Instead, he is explaining why people resist it. Um, He's explaining why people resist it. He says, it is human nature that, that we simply want to expand our modes of worship rather than be restricted to the ways that God has given us to worship corporately. Um, now, let me actually talk about three real objections. Here's the first one. 
Here's the first objection I think that people have of regulative principle. By the way, I tried to like do a little homework here so that I wasn't just making up the worst arguments that you could hear. So here's one though, and this is more of an emotional response people have. The, the regulative principle seems legalistic and restrictive. The, le- the, re- the regulative principle seems legalistic and restrictive. Um, let's talk about restrictiveness here. Any time that God reveals himself and tells us what pleases him, automatically the circle is getting smaller on human behavior, right? So limitations are actually a necessary part of being creatures, just creatures in general, that we have limitations placed on us by God. And so that's the nature of living under God, just period, that God is going to say that some things please him and that other things don't please him. And so automatically restrictiveness is going to come in. So the idea that, well, this is, this is limiting to me, therefore I don't like it, is not actually, I don't think it's a very good argument uh, against the regulative principle because it's just part of living in God's world. But the other side of this is we use the word legalistic sometimes for things that feel restrictive. Um, when we think of legalism, one way we can think of legalism is sort of the works righteousness legalism. That's not, I think, what's being talked about here. The other type of legalism I would call inventive legalism. So this would be sort of like what you see from the Pharisees in Scripture, where the Pharisees are willing to go above and beyond what God says in his word. So they're law keepers and then some. Um, they're law keepers, and they say, I can think of other ways to keep the law, even beyond what God has actually said. And so with, a, with somebody like the Pharisees, you have to be careful about bringing out the Pharisees because it's like bringing up the Nazis. It's like when the, argument, when the Pharisees get brought up, you've lost the argument sometimes. is a, a, you know, a, a fair criticism, and I don't want to seem like I'm just going there immediately. But the, what the Pharisees did was actually really well-intentioned. The Pharisees were trying to prevent themselves from sinning by going above and beyond. Um, and they didn't just go above and beyond, but here was the other problem. They demanded that other people do more than what God's word called them to. The, the Pharisees didn't just say, for us, we're gonna wash our hands over here. In other words, the Pharisees also go, why aren't you guys? Why aren't you guys adding to the law? Why aren't you guys doing more? Are you guys not that serious about God? And so when that happens, Jesus pushes back and he challenges them. He says, go back to the word of God again and you will see that it is not that restrictive. And so here's what the regulative principle does. It actually allows freedom when it comes to some forms and with regard to the circumstances of worship. There's a built-in freedom in the regulative principle, but not an unrestrained, absolute libertarian type of freedom where anything goes. Um, I think it's very good for us to think well and in a healthy way about restrictions and about the way that God holds us back from our own creativity. Um, If I could put it gently, I think I would want to turn a mirror back on this complaint because here's, here's what the reality is. I think the reality is the normative principle brings us closer to legalism than the regulative principle does. Because under the guidance of the normative principle, we would call others to corporately worship God in ways beyond what he said in his word. In other words, let's add to what God has said and prove to us that it's bad. Like that's basically what the normative principle does. Now, if I could be as respectful as possible, the Pharisees did the same thing, right? They asked people, go above and beyond God's word. And in many cases, they're not asking people to do things that are violations of the word of God. 
Find a verse in the Bible that says washing your hands all the time before you eat is a sin. You won't find it. And yet Jesus goes to the Pharisees and he's like, you guys bind people's consciences. You put burdens on their backs that they were never meant to carry. So he's always taking them back to the word and saying, find your restrictions there. Don't make up new ones. That's what Jesus does. And so I know it's a harsh sort of conclusion to arrive at, but I think the normative principle does that. I think it puts burdens on people's backs. I think it adds new things to people that weren't there to begin with. Um, Here's a third objection. Uh, I believe in the regulative principle. I just understand it differently. Um, A good example of this approach would be somebody like John Frame. I I don't expect that you've read John Frame, but what John Frame did was he sort of resisted distinguishing between private and public worship. He basically rolled them together. And he said, look, all of life is meant to be regulated by scripture and not just public worship. It's not just public worship that's regulated by scripture. And so the implication of that of him pointing that out is that if something is acceptable in private worship, then there should be nothing wrong with including it in public worship. Um, but the regulative principle recognizes there are things God commands for public worship that he doesn't permit for individuals, right? An individual is not permitted to administer the sacraments to themselves, just as an example. Um, And there are things that a family might do and it would be appropriate for a family to do, uh, according to God's word, that wouldn't be appropriate for a church to do. Um, Scripture does recognize as a such thing as as corporate worship. I think that's the main thing that I would respond with to that approach that basically says, look, all of life is worship. Therefore, this distinction that you make between public and private worship Just isn't valid. Well, no, we have all kinds of passages where the church is commanded to do things when they're gathered together, right? You observe the Lord's Supper when you are gathered together, 1 Corinthians 11, 18. Uh, We're commanded to pray when we are together, Romans 15, 30. Um, We're commanded to hear the word of God when we are together, Acts 15, 30. Uh, We're commanded to observe the Lord's Supper when we're together, 1 Corinthians 11, 20. Uh, We're commanded to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs when we are together to each other. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3. Um, To give you an example of something that we do in private that you wouldn't make a part of public worship, husbands and wives have duty towards one another that you would not make a part of public worship, right? And yet obedience to God is a form of worship. So when husbands and wives do what husbands and wives are meant to do, It's a way of glorifying God, but you wouldn't make that a part of the public worship service. So it's a healthy thing to know the distinction between public and private worship. Um, I'll give you one more example, uh, one more objection, and this one might be the most in the weeds. Here's the objection. Jesus worshiped in the synagogue, which was not mandated in scripture. All right, you follow so far? No synagogue worship mandated in scripture. So Jesus worshiped in a way that didn't fit with the regulative principle. This actually might seem like the most um, relevant objection to the regulative principle. Um, The reality is, though, this is a non sequitur because Jesus' presence in the synagogue doesn't imply that God's people can worship God in any way that they please. Um, one of the things that the Westminster divines understood was that the worship of the synagogue and festivals like Purim were examples of special occasions. Remember Purim uh, after um, uh, Esther. Thank you. Uh, in the book of Esther, right? 
Um, celebrations like Purim are examples of special occasions, and the Directory of Public Worship has a whole section on special occasions. Um, and I would include our Tenebrae services, and I would include our Lessons and Carols as examples of special occasions. Um, Leviticus 23.3 says the Sabbath is a day of sacred assembly, right? From the earliest days, the Jews gathered for the worship on the Sabbath. When they gathered, when they get, where they gathered was a circumstance of worship, not an element. And so even the, the fact of the synagogues is a circumstance of worship. It's not an element of worship. Um, also, though, if you go through what was actually contained in the synagogue worship, what you find is nothing contrary to the regulative principle. They would have a call to worship. They would have prayers, psalm singing, reciting scripture, a reading from scripture with preaching. And then you would have a biblical blessing given to those who are parting. And so what you have in the synagogue is actually perfectly in keeping with the regulative principle. Yeah, Benjamin. Would it be too much a generalization to say that the normative principle would be subjective and the regulative principle objective? I wouldn't say it that way because I think that anyone who's following the normative principle is going to be like, look, I'm guided by scripture. Just show me that this is sinful from God's word objectively. But it's, and it's, I won't do it. it's an individual who thinks that this should be done. Well, a church, church actually might do it too, though. So a church might actually tell people to do something based, that God's word doesn't have. So it wouldn't just be an individual. But based, an individual would have to generate that particular idea. That's true. Yeah, but, but it's usually not like that. It's usually more of a, an inherited tradition. Um, you know, usually it's not some creative individual saying, hey, here, I'm, I've got an idea. Sometimes it is, but not usually. Usually it's some ancient practice. Like, think of this whole series that we've done. Go back to what we talked about at the very beginning. Think of how simple worship was in the first hundred years of the church. Think of how easily those things begin to accumulate, that they start to do, how, how much the practices continue to build on each other, uh, how, some, how something starts off as a great idea that ends up becoming a norm that's expected. All of that actually, I think, shows that these things happen naturally and usually not in a malicious way, certainly not in any kind of way that's badly intentioned at all. But it happens really naturally, and it makes sense when it, when it happens. So um, the they, they, tradition creeps in in a way that um, is sometimes very hard to spot. That's why the Reformers were such a fly in the ointment for, for the, the Roman Catholic Church, I think, because they kept saying, take us back to Scripture – and for the Roman Catholics, the holidays, all of these things that we've been talking about, they were the air they breathed. It was like being told, you need to stop having oxygen. And they were going, what? But we've always breathed this stuff. Um, we've always breathed cigarette smoke, you know? <laughs> and you're like, but have you ever breathed clean air? Look over here where they've got it in the scriptures. And so they, when the reformers do that, they're, it's hugely irritating because you're basically tearing up what they've done for centuries. And it feels natural. It doesn't feel unusual. It feels like what the church is supposed to be doing. That's just how these things happen. They don't happen in a way that feels weird, forced, unnatural. Um, but that's, that's why the, the Reformation was so painful. It was like flesh being torn from bone. You know, it really, and it was, and it did end up involving just whole nations going to war with one another. So it, it just shows how hard it is to extract tradition uh, and hold it up to the light of scripture. It's hard and it's painful. Um, 
all of this series, my goal has been for us to think a lot about worship. And I hope you found it beneficial. I hope you found it helpful. I hope that thinking about the early church and thinking about how they worshiped and thinking about how we got to the place where we are today, um, we, there is a lot of variety in churches. There is a ton of variety between Reformed churches, Catholic churches, Greek Orthodox churches. We talked a lot about that early on. But also Anglican churches, Presbyterian churches, non-denominational churches, Baptist churches. You see a lot of variety. And one of the things I hope you take away from all of this is that we can be brothers and sisters with people and disagree with them about how worship is done. But I don't want you to come away thinking how we worship is totally subjective. One of the things that that Jesus talks about is that we're meant to worship in spirit and in truth. And so our worship is worship, objective, objective, true worship of a holy God that is not done on our own. It's done through the help of the Holy Spirit. Um, It's something that God has given us commands for. He's given us direction. He's not left us to guess. All of this, I hope you have found to be a great blessing. Mm -hmm. I hope we don't come out of this going, well, anything's possible. Anything's uh, optional. You know, it's all bets are off, totally subjective. Instead, I hope we come away going, there's an awful lot of freedom in how we worship. And God's given us an awful lot of direction in how we should worship. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's, there's freedom within those bounds. And I think our God is just gracious to us. And he's kept us from... Needing to do guesswork on what pleases him. And I think that's a great thing. I think that's a glorious thing. I hope you found that helpful. And I hope that your worship here at Evergreen is built up and edified because of this series. So, um, yeah, Benjamin. One thing that you have recommended that I would recommend to the rest of the group here Mm -hmm. is a book by Oliphant Old Mm -hmm. that I've been reading extremely interesting and gives you a really good breakdown on how the reformed worship you know eventually took place awesome so i would recommend for anyone who's interested in going more in depth to read that book yeah so the book is called worship (laughs) by hugh oh yeah reformed according to scripture there is a subtitle to that book by hughes oliphant old i think that's a good place to start I would also recommend another book that just came out that actually came out after I started this series and after I did the early church worship portion of it. And I read it and I thought, wow, he lined up with me on a ton of stuff. So I was really excited. Um, But um, it's by Justo Gonzalez is his name. Justo Gonzalez, Worship in the Early Church. That book only came out like a year ago. And so it's really, really, really good, especially if the early church worship part of this series was gripping to you and exciting to you. Um, I, would, I would say that is a good place to start. I loved that book, and I thought he did an excellent, excellent job. And some of this, I started reading it as I was doing this series, and I was able to come in and supplement some of what I was teaching and talking about in here with what I was reading. So I would recommend that book. I would recommend Hughes Elephant Old. Those are both good places to start. The second book was Justo Gonzalez, so J-U-S-T-O Gonzalez, um, and it's called Worship in the Early Church or Early Church Worship. Ah, sorry, I don't. I got. I'm gonna. If you just look up his name in Early Church, you'll find it. Um, let me close this in prayer. Let me close this. Um, Heavenly Father, you are so kind to us that 
You realize that we are flesh. You realize that we are frail. You realize, you realize how prone we are to inventing our own ways of worshiping you, God. And we thank you that you have told us in your word what pleases you. We thank you that there is a simplicity in what pleases you, God. You're pleased by our singing. You're pleased by our prayers. You're pleased to have your word declared. You're, you're pleased to have your sacraments set forth. Uh, you are pleased, Lord, when your people are gathered together. And so I pray that we would have a renewed appreciation of that. I pray we'd have a, new, a renewed appreciation of corporate worship. I pray that you would help for us, Lord, to be flexible in the ways that we ought to be flexible, in the ways that you've told us, Lord, that there's freedom. But I also pray that we would be guided by what your word actually says too. Uh, would you help us, God? Would you continue to reform us according to scripture? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.